We all want to change the world and we all want to change the food system. Um, I'm Laura, or a lot of us do. Once you know about the food system, you're going to want something a lot different than what we're currently doing with the planet. Um, welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person deeply concerned about the global food system. Later in the program, we'll be talking with Seward Co-op about the CSA Fair happening today, Saturday, April 23rd, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Seward Co-op Creamery parking lot. That's at 2601 Franklin Avenue. So we'll be talking about that later on the show. But first, we're going to be talking about the global food system with IATP. That's the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Ben Livingston, the Director of Rural Strategies and Climate Change. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Thanks. Okay, first tell us about what is what is IATP? Yeah, so the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, we're based in Minneapolis. We've been around for more than 30 years. We were formed during the farm crisis of the 80s to really look at what are the policy drivers for that crisis, things that are happening internationally, things that are happening nationally and locally, and try to look at the the policies that are uh, maybe not paying farmers enough to keep going, um, maybe um, work against more sustainable agriculture or regenerative or organic agriculture, um, and how do we, you know, improve environmental outcomes from farming. So that's really sort of been our focus. We're sort of a think tank advocacy type of organization. And you have deep connections with people all around the globe. We do around the globe, and we work um, actively in Minnesota as well. Okay. So what about your personal background? Well, personally, I um, I got into, I, I after college, went and worked uh, with Ralph Nader for a while in Washington, D.C., and did a lot of work around public interest, um, advocacy, around corporate power, um, and then uh, I came out with a journalism degree out of college, so I was doing a lot of writing, and then started to do some work with environmental groups around um, um, public education, and in particular, what, uh, this was in the, in the 90s, around organic standards, and that was a big fight. Um, many of your listeners may remember about what is going to be identified as organic? What's going to qualify? And that really got me interested in food systems and um, agriculture. And, you know, everyone is affected, even if you're not a farmer. Obviously, you're affected by our food system. So that really fascinated me. And then I gravitated towards IETP, which I think is just a, um endlessly uh, interesting organization working on things that are ever-changing. Yeah, and again, there's so much I want to get into with what you just said right there, because I know there's a new report out that was, um, you know, they're looking at children and how many chemicals we have in our bodies. And uh, people who became concerned about this, they um, became active and they said, we need organic food. And that was really quite a battle to get that organic food. Just give us a a nutshell of what that was about. Yeah, well, um, so... Uh, organic standards originally was very, was very grassroots, the way the organic agriculture movement started and grew um, through the 70s and 80s, um, and very small scale and localized. And 
they felt like they needed to have some standards where if you're a consumer and you're going to buy organic, you kind of understand how they're growing that food. What does that mean? It has to have some meaning and value. So there were regional certification bodies all over the country, and each one was a little different. And so the, uh, I think the industry realized sort of in the late 80s, we need one standard, and we probably need to go through the U.S. Department of Agriculture to do that. And so there was a, a, a big effort to try to set common standards for organic that would apply, you know, throughout the country. Um, and what what is that going to include? And they originally, you know, included things like genetically engineered crops and <laughs> sewage goods and, you know, things that people are like, that's not what we're talking about when we think about organic. And so that, that was the big fight. There was a big pushback. And they they finally worked out to have pretty strong organic rules. Um, but there's, you know, uh, continuing debates, feverish debates about, you know, um, about as those as those standards evolve, you know, right. and, and new technologies come on board or um, new innovations or new issues arise like climate change. Like, how do we how do we think about organic standards in those contexts? And so um, I reached after I reached out to you after hearing a webinar that IATP did, and um, that carbon farming: why carbon mar- markets won't work for farmers or the climate. So let's talk about that issue. Um, so first of all, what do people mean when they use that phrase "carbon farming," and how does that? How is you know how are some of these things important, especially um, in the context of our climate crisis? Right. So probably no sector. Uh, in the economy that's dealing more with the climate crisis than farmers. They're really affected by weather and changes of weather are already driving change. Um, and agriculture is unique in that not only does it have to deal with the effects of, of climate change, but it can also sequester carbon and store carbon and be part of, you know, some people talk about it as being part of the solution. Um, and so, and so certain practices can do that, and, and that's a good thing. I think we all, um, a lot of those practices are um, what we would consider organic or regenerative. So a focus on soil health, um, a focus on some kind of continuous living cover on the, on the land, maybe it's perennial grasses, um, a lot of um, uh, using, uh, you know, helping to manage water, um, and water flow on your farm. Um, so a lot of those things that have traditionally been considered sustainable and organic also are really good for the climate, both from dealing with extreme weather and from sequestering carbon. So that's the um, uh, kind of what we're talking about when we talk about carbon farming. And so a, a wonderful let's see underneath the hazelnuts. That's really good for the climate. That yeah, tree range I mean, chickens, those, those type of farm systems. That's right. That's right. Because you're not relying on um, heavily chemically fertilized feed to feed those chickens. And, you know, that's one of the sources of greenhouse gas emissions is uh, synthetic fertilizers, um, as well as excessive manure um, in these giant confined animal feeding operations, these really big ones where they have to store manure in big manure pits and liquefy that manure. That's another major source greenhouse gas emissions. So globally, people are talking about carbon carbon farm credit system. So what does that mean? Yeah, so carbon um, 
probably well, several decades ago, one of the main climate policies that people were talking about was we're going to create a carbon market and we're going to issue credits to polluters and we're going to gradually reduce those credits and that's going to reduce pollution. But we're going to allow sort of an off-ramp for those polluters, kind of almost a get-out-of-jail-free card, and that they can buy um, credits from other parts of our economy um, if they can't meet the pollution requirements to reduce pollution. And so one of those areas that they've been talking about, you know, for more than a decade is agriculture. And that if you are able to sequester carbon, you can sell and create a carbon credit and sell that to a polluter. And um, so, like I said, it's been, it's been in various forms that kind of, um, carbon credit related to agriculture has been around for more than a decade. We had a Chicago climate exchange that was based in Chicago in the, in 2008, 2009, 2010, where companies were buying carbon credits for farmers, but that exchange collapsed. And the more that we understand sort of the science around carbon sequestration, um, and the more that we have seen the impact of these these carbon markets, which they really, in general, have not worked well at all, um, it, it becomes clear that this kind of system is not going to work well for farmers. They're not going to get paid enough. They sort of get themselves into these owner's contracts that limit what they can do on the farm. Um, and it also allows polluters to keep polluting by buying those kinds of credits. So it hasn't worked well for the climate either. So that was sort of one of the, you know, a couple of the key points that we had in our webinar on this topic. Right. So the carbon farm credit system was basically set up for polluters, not f- small farms. What could we be doing instead? Well, you know, we feel like um, one big thing is we have um, really good national level conservation programs that are in really high demand and we don't have enough money for them. You know, and it, every year farmers apply and they uh, are turned away from those programs. So we did a research analysis recently that looked at the conservation stewardship program, which is a whole farm conservation program. And, it, and it's available for farmers of all sizes, small scale, big scale. So there's no scale limitations. Um, and um, I think it's something like 41% of farmers, only 41% of farmers who applied were approved for that program. So that tells you you got 60% of those farmers who tried to get into that program were turned away. Um, and there are other conservation programs, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, a bunch of acronyms, so I don't want to get into it. But basically that helps support farmers uh, invest in soil health, um, like things, all the things we talked about, perennial grasses, water buffers, things that keep the water um, and hold the water in the land, um, all those kind of diversified sort of farming instead of just corn and soybeans that we see in the landscape of Minnesota. Um, farmers are interested in that, but they can't get access to those. So one big thing would be expanding those programs. We can still improve those programs. They still have flaws um, and um we can make them better, but um, I think that's one big thing. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the global situation right now and um, especially what's happening with fertilizers. Um, so talk about what's happening with fertilizers in, in the global markets right now. 
Yeah, well, the the fertilizer industry is really concentrated, um, and uh, only a handful of companies kind of control different parts of the fertilizer uh, industry. And Russia and the Ukraine are both major fertilizer suppliers, and so that war um, is um, has driven fertilizer prices um, much higher than they've been in quite a long time. Um, and this was sort of happening before the war. Like, I think people were seeing it. Um, and so that is, that kind of fertilizer, um, uh, it's, when, when prices rise that quickly, um, it kind of sends a shock through the system. But I would say that there's also a lot of speculation going on among um, people who play the markets. And uh, you're seeing, so a rise of wheat is another um, big increase that we've seen in agriculture. Those those two countries are also big wheat exporters. But if you look at it in the context of global wheat production, it's not that high. But you're still seeing a spike in wheat prices. We're seeing a spike in corn prices now. Um and a spike in natural gas prices. And all those commodities are sort of often get linked together in uh, when the traders um, start speculating on different commodities. They get tied together in these commodity index funds. And so there's just a lot of volatility out there, and we're seeing mostly increases in prices. So higher fertilizer prices, one of the things that has meant is that farmers this year – are growing more soybeans than corn. Corn requires more fertilizer. They're, they kind of saw that and they said, okay, we're going to grow soybeans this year. So supposedly we're going to have one of our biggest um, crops of soybeans. And um, I mean, so there are um, wonderful things like agroecology or no cost carbon, uh, no cost natural farming. So there are alternatives, no. but it's almost like um, I mean those those are fledgling or, or small in terms of how much they're actually. Um, what, what, what do you think about those no cost and agroecology? Can we feed the world with this type of approach? Well, yes, we can, and uh, I think there's more and more research out there that shows that. So the, this big so these global supply chains are very vulnerable. So this is why. You know, a disruption in, in Russia and Ukraine effect, can affect our ag economy here. They're all tied together, and one disruption can throw things off. Um, it's it's also a concern that people have around climate change because we know we're going to see more and more disruptions, climate-related disruptions. We saw a major drought here last year um, in the upper Midwest, and one continues now even in the, in the western part of the country. Um, so we may see rising sort of fruit and vegetable prices related to that. Um, so with the longer the supply chain, the more vulnerable it is to disruption. And so there has been growing, uh, I think, interest and energy towards building more decentralized food systems that focus on agroecology, which is sort of um, rotating your crops correctly, um, uh, thinking about soil health, um, maybe having more diversified operations. So you may have some land, land and grains and maybe fruits and vegetables on the same sort of farm. Um, that's getting a lot of pickup in a lot of the uh, poorer countries around the world 
who um, don't have a lot of money for inputs. <laughs> so they're so they're able to produce more food this way. Um, and they're not as reliant on chemical fertilizers. Um, so there's a lot of interest and, and movement around the world. And I think we're going to see more. This fertilizer, this disruption around fertilizers is um, right now, I think, um, sort of a warning shot for how vulnerable our global food system is. And the same with the COVID outbreak that we had um, two years ago in meatpacking plants is another um, warning show. Yeah, Ben uh, Livingston, Director of Rural Strategies and Climate Change with IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. We're talking about the global food system. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. There is a land that I have heard about so far. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and uh, joining us by phone is Ben Livingston. He's the Director of Rural Strategies and Climate Change for the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy. And we were talking about the situation in Ukraine. And uh, this last week, um, Sunday, April 17th, uh, David Beasley, he's the executive director of the United Nations World Food Program. Uh, He was on Face the Nation, and he points out that Ukraine grows enough food to feed 400 million people around the planet. Um, In fact, they buy 50% of the grain from Ukraine. Um, So he's predicting general price increases of food of 38 to 40 percent and and that's gonna be tough for so many people and and it's even hard to even um take in the level of um crises that we're facing right now yeah it is hard and i think it's changing you know day by day it feels like so you know what he's talking about at the world food program um is basically they um, deliver food to parts of the world that are facing hunger. And um, I think it points to one of the real vulnerabilities in this kind of global system is that when you're dependent on too few countries to supply the food and you haven't helped countries build up their own local food production, um, you're vulnerable (laughs) to when one of these choke points kind of um, breaks off and you can't get the supply that you need. One of the things that our organization and, and other organizations have talked about for a long time is to really establish more um, concrete sort of food reserves in different parts of the world. And um, so that when these types of crises happen, we have food already available. And a lot of these crops are storable. Um, wheat is storable, um, corn is storable as well. And how do we um, be prepared and be able to weather these types of disruptions? Um, it's going to be tough, it, it, but I do think, and, and I will say, it, we do think that some of the price inflation around food is also, it's not just about supply and demand. It, it, there's also some speculation going on around um, some of the traders and international traders who are who are who are guessing about circumstances in the future um, and not exactly um, sort of reflecting what's happening right now. I um 
I, I picked up this quote from E.O. Wilson in his book, um, Social Conquest of Earth, and I, it, it's what we need in this world is, um, is, is the unrelenting application of reason, a basic sense of kindness, and an understanding of who we are. And so, so this, how do we have this kind, sane world that I think everybody wants? And, and, and so I'm not sure how to get there. I mean, that's where, I mean, it, it, I don't think there's, you know, one simple solution or one simple answer, but, um, but, but at the same time, it, it, it can feel um, almost too frightening to even try to explore what we might be facing in the next couple of months, what we might see, um, and yet, I'm optimistic that maybe, maybe we won't. Maybe, maybe it will be okay too. I mean, I, I like. What do you think is going to be next? <laughs> that, is, that is so hard to predict. Um, I do think some of it will have to do with weather, uh, which is kind of. But you know, um, we've we've dealt with a serious drought here last year, um, and things seem to be improving in the Midwest. A, a really good crop here could help a lot. Um, and this, I think same with other parts of the world. I know Brazil had been dealing with a drought. Parts of Africa have been dealing with it. Um, so I think what's happening in Ukraine, Russia, is a vulner- exposing a vulnerability. And uh, But then if we get something else on top of that, it could turn out really badly if we have some good fortune uh, and maybe things change in that uh, disruption in, in Ukraine and Russia. Um, maybe we could come out of it okay. Um, yeah, yeah, we we don't know. So um, I've got a, a statistic here from the Economist magazine, April 9th, that um, China, um, the American Department of Agriculture predicts that by the middle of this year, China will hold 69% of the world's um, corn reserves, 60% of its rice and 51% of its wheat, all to feed 18% of the world's population. So that idea of storing food for times like this it's just, I mean, that's kind of an interesting tidbit. But now I want to switch a little bit to the the hope and optimism that sometimes in times of crisis is is really a we're able to transition faster than we thought was possible. And can we transition to a way of growing food that is more aligned with nature, mm-hmm. natural systems, agroecology? permaculture, alternative grains, forever greens. Can, can we speed up that transition to um, sane and healthy agriculture? Um, I think that a lot of um, farmers and policymakers are asking some of these questions. So for the first time, we are started, starting to grapple with the impacts of climate change um, I think that, like as I mentioned before, the COVID disruption, this war disruption, other climate-related disruptions are exposing the vulnerability of sort of this global food system. Um, and there is a sense, uh, I think, right now, this particularly with these fertilizer prices that are are shaking up a lot of people in the ag economy. That hey, what kind of system could we shift towards where we are less reliant? on fertilizer. There's also a problem of over-application of fertilizer. One of the reasons that that has happened is because it's been so cheap. Um, But I think we're looking at a world where fertilizer won't be so cheap as we move forward. 
Um, and so it, it's very reliant on natural gas. And if we're going to start to really reduce natural gas production, which we're going to have to in response to climate change, fertilizer prices are going to be affected. So um, I think there's a lot of more openness and interest into what could different systems look like that would be more resilient. Right. And uh, so uh, factory farming, industrial meat and dairy, and methane, um, you want to address how those systems could be different and what, what the problem is with the current system of industrial and factory farming and what could what could work better? Yeah, so some of our research has looked at um, big dairy and meat companies and their greenhouse gas emissions. We just put out uh, a paper earlier today around JBS, who's the biggest meat company in the world, um, and how their emissions are rising and have risen over 50% over the last five years. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the industrial model of production that has just really changed things over the last two decades, sort of started three decades ago, and then just really has accelerated. And that is putting a lot of animals in a small space, often uh, indoors, and concentrating the animals and then concentrating the manure. And so in the case of dairy or beef production, cows are a major source of methane emissions themselves, just, you know, what's coming out of the cow, both ends of the cow. Um, but then you also have the manure. If it's managed in giant manure lagoons like that, it's also a source of methane and nitrous oxide, so two really potent greenhouse gases. Um, so we really need to look at that whole system and I think acknowledge that that has produced a number of bad environmental outcomes, including a lot of water pollution and a lot of air pollution, not just uh, greenhouse gases. Um and start to think about how sustainable that system is. It's in. It seems like it's on perpetual growth. Like they just continue to build more and more of these very large facilities. And at some point, we need to put a stop to it. So there is uh, um, some interest at the national level um, and bills put forward to put a moratorium on the growth of those uh, and continue to build build out more and more CAFOs. Those are confined animal. Uh, feeding operations. There's also a push that we've made in a number of groups to call on the EPA to start to regulate methane from just the biggest of those operations that have thousands of animals uh, in place. Um, states are also trying to figure out how to grapple with this. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of people who are who can see the problem yeah. and are trying to figure out. It's not just you know I think putting the hammer down, but also how do we help transition towards a different system. Towards a difference. And, and hope news. Um, the people in Trade Lake were upset. Trade Lake, Wisconsin, were upset about potential factory farmers, farming coming in. And they've done a fantastic job organizing and protecting their communities uh, against factory farming. But this, of course, is a global issue. Um, we can... Companies make money if they cut down the rainforest and 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 do, do cows. And uh, I mean, so it, it's a systematic issue. It is. It is. And, and that's why we put a lot of focus on some of these global companies, because they are very powerful and they operate all over the world. But I think the U.S. The U.S. has been a pioneer in this factory farm system, and we have some responsibility as a country. Uh, and I think if we were to take action uh, to try to limit the environmental damage and to set as a goal to transition towards 
um, other types of systems that work well for farmers that cost them less so they can lower their costs and maybe get a better price in the market. I think that will be very influential globally. Um, and then we can put pressure on other countries to do the same. Europe is also acting right now to try to address these types of issues. They, um, the Netherlands just put a um, forward a policy to try to reduce the number of cows in the country because of they're dealing with uh, water pollution issues. So, um, you know, if the U.S. and Europe are, are able to take steps quickly, then we can put pressure on other countries that um, where those companies are operating with less regulation. And uh, yeah, and you guys had a recent webinar, and people can go on your website and hear these entire webinars. But one, the one is on Mexico, Mexico's transition from ag biotech to agroecology and challenges from U.S. trade policy. So tell us a little bit about what was covered in that webinar and what people can hear if they go on your website. Yeah, so Mexico is doing this really interesting um, initiative around their farming system. You know, they they are part of the U.S. and Canada uh, uh, as part of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, that was passed in the 90s. And what that did was basically allow them to become very dependent on the U.S. for a lot of their food system and also uh, a really push for them to adopt um, our farming system Includes, which includes a lot of genetically engineered crops, uh, particularly the big, you know, corn and soybean and, and, and cotton and those types of crops. And so they are putting forward a new initiative to really be more self-sufficient, um, produce more of their own food, promote agroecology. So that means less, less inputs. And they're pushing back on GMOs, of course, um, corn is really holds a special place in culturally and nutritionally in Mexico. And so they've banned uh, GMO corn. They're also targeting Roundup, which is a particular chemical that is used in a lot of uh, genetically engineered crops, including corn. So um, they're putting forward these policies and they're getting a lot of pushback from the United States. Um, but right now, Mexico is saying we're, we have the right to set up our food, own food system the way that we think is necessary. So they're holding firm right now. And that's what that webinar gets into is um, some of those issues. And uh, that's one reason we really need education on this so that we understand because, of, I mean, food sovereignty. And, and also you said the relationship of people and corn. And, you know, that's having – uh, water is life, and seeing food not as a thing, seeing the planet not as a thing, but as 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 a being. Maybe I'm not sure if I'm saying that mm-hmm. right, but um, but but recognizing um, food is more than just calories. I mean, it's 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 so much more complex. That's right. It's not something in that, that's anonymous, and and it, it does matter. You know what part it plays in society, the people who grow it matter, um, and how it was grown matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another one you come up is on May 18th um, this year. You've got Lessons for Maine, Food, Farmers, and Forever Chemicals. So talk about that. We have about just two and a half minutes left. But Forever Chemicals, the, the problems with that in agriculture right now. Well, this is some more scary news, unfortunately, but they discovered in Maine um, that there is more and more um, contamination of farmland from these forever chemicals, which is known as PFAS. 
and Minnesota's 3M is one of the biggest uh, makers of that. And it got there through the application of sewage sludge, which is often used as fertilizer. Um, and so they're dealing with a lot of problems there with farmers. And so basically this webinar will help you understand um, the extent of contamination in Maine. And there's concerns that it could be in other states around the country as well. Any any state or community that's used sewage sludge may have uh, one some of these forever chemicals in contaminating that sewage sludge. Um, and it could have real implications for farmers. So, But Maine has taken some really strong responses, put forward some really good policy and got it passed. So that, that's what we'll talk about in that webinar. So a minute left. Um, anything else you'd like to say? Um, point out your website and um, how people can um, get involved and understand more of these policy issues? Yeah, I mean, you know, our website is iatp.org, and you can connect with us there. You can connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Um, we have a newsletter. We're cranking stuff out all the time. So, yeah. And, you know... Forever chemicals in our food, war, famine, pesticide. I mean, yeah, laughter. I mean, and actually someone said to me, you know, it's like laughter is just another form of crying and sometimes just, you know, exhaling it out. But the the thing that um, kind of holds me up is that it's also the, the times of crises are times for change. And we've needed to move to a more agroecology, an approach that works with the with life and with nature, not as dominant towards nature, but as a partnership with nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are some good things that happened in Minnesota. We can get a chance to talk about it. But during this um, legislative session, some really good things about community food systems that are moving forward. Community food systems. And we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. We'll be talking about uh, Seward Co-op's uh, CSA program and how you can uh, participate in community foods. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and uh, joining us now is Kara Barr with Seward Co-op. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thanks for having Seward. Thank you. And 50 years. You're celebrating 50 years. What a what an achievement. We are, and we're really we're really excited about it. It's a big deal. Um, we're having a few different mini celebrations to celebrate this milestone throughout the year. We had a film screening back in January on the Co-op Wars. Uh, now we're doing our 21st annual CSA Fair. In the summer, we look forward to participating at Open Streets, oh. Franklin. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and then as far as the Co-op Wars, that movie is actually free. Anyone can watch it. Just um, search the terms Co-op War and TPTP, uh, Twin Cities Public Television. You can watch it. And it has wonderful film from 50 years ago. And the starting of Seward Co-op is so kind of it, – it's cool because, like, someone walked up to David Zimmerman and said, do you need – a do you know anyone who could buy a freezer? And then he stopped by and he's like, here's this local, local store. And it was already – and so then within weeks from that little meeting, Seward Co-op started. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting how that all unfolded. <laughs> and it is definitely outlined in that movie. Um, and I definitely check pe- 
or encourage people to check that out. And um, so the CSA Fair is going to be Saturday, April 23rd. So this Saturday. So if you're listening to us in the morning, head out to the CSA Fair. Sunday, you can still find out more information by going to Seward Co-op. But what will people um, uh, be able to experience at the CSA Fair? Yeah, it's a great opportunity to connect, uh, not only with local farmers, but it's been a while since we've held an in-person event. So really, it's an opportunity to gather with fellow community members, people who also have a passion or enthusiasm for local food. Um, we'll have a, a few different farmer talks um, with local farmers. We'll have Hafa. We will have um, Naima Dorr from the Somali American Farmer Association. And then we'll also have Jack Hedin from Featherstone Farm talking to us about, you know, what it means to farmers when they have successful CSA programs and really what the value consumers can bring to that farmer model. Right. And so why is it important to have the CSA? How does CSA support local farms? Yeah, so what what it does is a CSA is an opportunity for consumers to connect directly with a farmer. And how it works is you pay for your produce up front before the local growing season starts. And that way, the farmer is able to, you know, get all the capital that they need to purchase their seeds, to add soil amendments, um, and pay their workers for... Um, some of the work that they do before the bounty is able to be sold. So it makes it viable, makes yep. local food viable. And so Saturday, April 23rd from 11 to 2, um, and this is a rain or shine event. Yes, it is. Our forecast is showing that the farmers will be getting much needed rain. But this <laughs> is a rain in, rain or shine event, and we will be set up under a tent Um so there will be some shelter. And it's located at the Seward Co-op Creamery parking lot at 2601 East Franklin. That's correct. Um, and so is it a good idea to promote your competitors? I mean, is that, is that a good thing to do in business? <laughs> um, it's kind of, it go, it's one of those things that is part of the co-op business model. And one of the core beliefs of Seward Co-op is that when farmers are doing well and the local food system is thriving and resilient, um, that we all really benefit from that and we all do well when that is happening. And really that's core to our mission to sustain a healthy community. And one of the important ways that we do that is hosting this annual CSA fair. Awesome. And um, over 30 different local CSAs. So talk about some of the uh, different CSAs that are different farms that are available. Yeah, so we'll have a lot of local farms. And, you know, these days, CSAs aren't just limited to produce. Um, you can get a lot of different kind of CSAs. You can get a flour CSA. You can get some local meat. You can get eggs. Um, you name it. These farmers have been getting creative. Um, and we're really looking forward to hosting um, some longtime farmers who have been a part of the CSA fair, um, like LTD Farm, San Fronteras, Burning River. Um, there are just a plethora of local food or local farmers that you can support at this CSA fair. 
Now, Chris, I think most people listening know what CSA stands for. But again, um, describe how some of these um, CSA packages, their weekly um, supports for, or not support, weekly getting uh, food uh, weekly. Yeah. So how it works is a little bit different for each farm. So most farms will set it up for like about 14 weeks of a weekly produce pick up and you can pick that up at a variety of locations around the city. Um, they have different size shares depending on the size of your household and your diet. Do you eat a lot of vegetables? Um, are you trying to just incorporate more? Really, they have a lot of different options for whatever you need. Um, and like I said, it's not just produce anymore. There's a lot of variety in the offerings that you can get from a CSA. And there's also a lot of variety when you where you can pick some of these up. So you can be going to Seward Co-op and pick up your CSA. Some of these are home delivered. Um, some are um, delivered at YMCA's or um, at Powderhorn State Fairgrounds, Mill City Farmers Market. So, um, or, yep. so there's a variety of pickups. Uh, let's talk about what you can do with a CSA. Um, you have ideas and tips? Yeah, yeah. I've had a CSA for a number of years now. And the first tip that I have is to really plan your CSA pickup day for a time that works best for you. Like if you're someone who does your meal planning on Sunday, maybe you want to find a share that's available to pick up that day. Maybe you want to pick it up on Thursday. Like I said, there's a lot of different options that you have. Um, it's always a good idea to talk to your friends, your family, maybe your coworkers. Um, you get a lot of produce in a lot of these shares and, you know, it's good to have some people in mind who you might think are interested in getting some extra produce or something maybe that's not as popular in your household. So having a network of people who you can kind of share the bounty with is also a good idea. Um, and probably the best trick that I have learned myself over the years is to wash and prep everything that I have right when I yes. get it. Yeah. That yeah. way everything is like prepped for snacking, for meals, for pickling, dehydrating, or whatever kind of preservation you want to do. Um, and when in doubt, roasted vegetables are delicious. Mm -hmm. It's great in stir fry or, you know, make a soup. Yeah, so I love I love roast of it. One of my favorite tips, and I've kind of nicknamed this as meal starters, because you know, a lot of times when you're starting a meal, you get all your vegetables together, and then later you might add a broth or meat or legumes and grains. So you're, but you, uh, in a lot of recipes, you you do those in two steps. So sometimes when I'm doing that first step. I make a lot more than I know I'm going to use, and I'm able to put some of that in a glass container, which can go in the freezer for later on. So I kind of call that my meal starter. So again, um, the Seward Co-op is celebrating 50 years this year, and you can stop by on Saturday, April 23rd from 11 to 2 uh, for the CSA Farmer, uh, CSA Fair. And go talk to your local farmer. Thank you so much, Kara Barr. Thank you.